Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. And the fact of it is, I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if you've listened to the show, you certainly know that. And you also know that my co-host, who is always with me, is someone who knows more than she wants to know about the Rock Hall at this point, although she is skeptical of the institution for the most part. It's Kristen Sutter. Hi, Kristen. Hello, Joe. Still with you after all these years, if you can believe it. Still talking every week about the Rock Hall. Somehow. And you're sounding pretty crisp there with the AKG microphone. Yes, I am. Thank you, AKG. And uh, let's go ahead and bring in our guest today. Very excited to have him. He's a professor at Yale. He's also the author of Fellow, the Life and Times of an African Musical Icon and the book Tony Allen, Master Drummer of Afrobeat. It's Michael Veal. Hi, Michael. Hello. Nice to meet both of you. Yes, we're really excited to, to have you on the show. First things first, and this is always what I ask our guests. Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a strange institution, often exists on the periphery of most people's experience. Uh, I'm curious, coming into this show, do you have any reference level for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, sure. I mean, I've seen, you know, the inductions over the years, mm-hmm. and those are always very meaningful significant, exciting, fun events. So yeah, I'm familiar with the institution. Absolutely. Oh, oh that's wow. Great. Already calling it meaningful and significant. Michael, you you care about it more than I did when I came onto this show the very first time. So now I would imagine you have some familiarity with the ballot this year because it's as someone who has written about and knows a lot about Fella. He is on the ballot for the first time this year. That's right. What I would like to do is I would like to pull up the ballot and we'll play a little game here. We'll pretend like you are a rock hall voter and we will see you can pick up to five. If you were a voter, who would you pick? And this year is, uh, I'm just going to let you know right off the bat, Michael, this is a better ballot than we've ever seen ever in the past. A lot of interesting and worthy and diverse acts on the ballot, which is definitely not 
been the case in the past. So well, it's 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 unfortunate in a way because there's so many great musicians here. I don't want to play any musicians against each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're all great. I mm-hmm. mean, everyone on the list is great, and uh, and they're all deserving of induction. That's what I have to say about the list. It's a it's a list of amazing artists. Whether or not it's my personal taste in music, I understand what all of them have contributed to to the world of music. You know, anytime a great musician can be recognized, I think that's a beautiful thing. But let's say you've got a ballot. <laughs> let's pretend you have a ballot. And so you have to pick five. What what do you do? Well, I would have to think about it. I couldn't answer at the moment. But I mean, I would say this, you know, obviously someone like Fela I would pick because I've been very closely involved with him and his music over many decades. Uh, I would pick... Uh, someone like Carol King, because she's contributed so much in terms of being one of the great songwriters. Uh, I would pick someone like Chaka Khan because she's such a fantastic vocalist and she has been over so many, uh, so many decades. Kate Bush, I would pick because she's been such a idiosyncratic, iconoclastic, creative outsider, consistently productive over many years. Devo, They've been so influential in bringing a different kind of approach to how rock is done. Uh, LL Cool J, Rage Against Machine. I, that's, you know, I couldn't it's hard. think of them. <laughs> yeah, that, it's difficult. Tina, I haven't even mentioned Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, so, so there are some great musicians on this ballot this year. So I want to give a little bit of a backstory here. When the nominees were announced, one of the things we do on the show is we want to make sure we talk to the right person about each artist and someone that would have a lot to say, someone who is a strong advocate, maybe even an expert. So I reached out to our friend, Daphne Brooks, who I feel like is someone who knows a lot of people. Can She can link people up, she can connect people. Mm. So I, I asked her, I was like, okay, with this list, what do you think? And she was like, well, if you're gonna talk about Fela Kuti, then like, you have to talk to Michael Veal. There's, there's no one else in the conversation. And also he's a colleague of mine at Yale, it'll be great. Also a musician who's got a kick-ass Afrobeat band in New York, Michael Veal and Aqua Ife, and who also played on stage with Fela, in addition to writing the book and writing the book about Tony Allen, Fela's longtime brilliant drummer. Yeah, and you know, as I was researching for this episode, I put on the documentary Finding Fela, which is great. It documents both his life and the process in putting up the Broadway show Fela. And there you were as a talking head frequently to give the historical backdrop. And I was like, this is confirming everything I thought. And then at the end with the, with the credits, you're even listed as the consultant. So I think to many, you are one of the definitive authorities when talking about Fela. So I'm very excited to talk to you and thank you again for, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me and I appreciate the acknowledgement. Absolutely. So I would like to know, let, let's, I would like to start on a personal level. Do you remember the first time you heard his music? Yeah, it was in uh, spring of 1983. You know, I was over at this guy's house and we were talking music. Actually, I was trying to hustle my own music to this guy at the point. But anyway, he wasn't feeling my music at that time. I was just getting started, you know. Uh-huh. But he said, now if it sounded something like Fela, you know, I might be into it. And I am saying, Fela, who is that? I never even heard of that. Oh, you never heard of Fela? It's this Nigerian guy. And he goes on and, you know, he's telling me all the stories about the typical elements of the Fela legend, you know, 27 wives and the army burning his house down and he's taking his mother's coffin, blah, blah. So he's telling me all this, you know what I'm saying? But I said, well, look, let me hear the music. I don't really care about all this. I want to hear what's at the heart of this thing. 
And uh, he threw on one of those uh, old Africa 70 albums. I think it was, like, it might've been uh, I Lock Bone Clothes or Expensive Shit or something like that. And it was just like, just blew me away. You see, because I was coming out of the funk paradigm, you know, the mm-hmm. 70s, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I came up through Parliament Funkadelic and Bootsy's Rubber Band and James Brown, Slime the Family Stone, Earth, Wind the Fire. So I came up through the funk paradigm, you know? And then when I heard this music, you know, I had the same response that, that Bootsy Collins had when he heard it. He said, wow, this is just like same paradigm that we're in, but it's somehow deeper, you know, there's something deeper about it. And so that was my first time that blew me away, you know? And, and from that moment, I basically became a, a devotee of Fela's music. Like I said, that was in 83. And uh, by 1986, I had met Fela once and, you know, told him about my intention to, to come to uh, Lagos and play with his band. And he was totally cool and, and open and welcoming which I eventually made it in 1992. In between then, you know, <laughs> I bought everything I could get my hands on, which was difficult at that time because mm-hmm. it looked like today when all the stuff was reissued and available. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to borrow stuff from Nigerian friends of mine and never return it or <laughs> find some records in different out-of-the-way record stores or if I knew someone was going to Nigeria, ask them to bring me back this or that. And so it was a, it was a long process, but basically... From the first moment, I was a, a devotee and still am. Yeah. So at a certain point, you there's like a transition from being a fan to kind of being a scholar. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a musician, too. So the thing is, it's all kind of linked. That's what knits everything together. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, I decided to go to graduate school to study ethnomusicology, but it, it was always the music that knitted everything together. Yeah, and I, I got to know, you kind of glossed over it, but pl- <laughs> actually playing with him, I would yeah. love to know the, the story there. Like, how do you go from being a fan of, of someone like this and then getting to play with him? That's extraordinary. Did you just like meet him at a show? Yeah, he, I met him after his first show when he came to New York in 1986. That was right after he'd gotten out of prison. He was a political dissident with a global reputation at that time. And, you know, Amnesty International had taken him up as a prisoner of conscience. And so in 1986, he did his first American concert tour. And yeah, he played in New York. It was early November, 86. Yeah, I was able to to meet him after the show through a series of uh, just lucky events for me, you know, very fortuitous series of events. I wasn't even supposed to be back there, but I got back there. And I told him that yeah, I love his music and that I wanted to come to Lagos and play with the band. And, you know, and we just chatted for a, a quick second because there were a lot of people back there. Ornette Coleman was back there. Oh, wow. You know, future mayor of New York, David Dinkins was back there. Baba Olatunji was back there. Roy Ayers was, you know, it was full of celebrities. Incredible. I don't even remember everyone that was back there. But uh, this was like, you know, Fela's triumphant visit to New York, you know, mm-hmm. after everything he'd gone through. Then he came back to tour in 1989 and kind of let me sit in with the band. You know, I played with them a few gigs around the Northeast, including one high-profile gig at the Apollo Theater, which was a benefit for James Brown, who was incarcerated at that time. This would, That would have been the summer of 1989, and then uh, summer of 90 and summer 91, he came back and toured the U.S. those summers, and I was able to sit in with the band playing saxophone those years. And then I finally went to Lagos spring of 1992. Yeah, did you have to, like audition for him or give him a tape or something? Or was he just cool, like, come on and and sit in with us? Yeah, I took my horn the first day and played some of his music, you know, but it's not like I was going to play in the horn section. I was just coming on and playing solos, but they call it featuring, you know, Mm -hmm. jazz musicians here, they call it sitting in. 
he could see that I could get around the horn. He could, you know, it wasn't any rigorous process. I think he just picked up on my vibe and saw that I was devoted to his music. That's incredible. I will He's never like, be this able- guy's cool. Put him in. <laughs> I can tell the vibe is right. He's good. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Wow. But there's a funny preamble, you know, because before they came here in 1989, uh, I'd done some detective work. I talked to his brother, Beckel, a physician and a very well-known political activist in Nigeria. And Beckel put me in touch with Fela's manager, and basically I got, I, you know, they were in London and I called Fela's hotel room. They just even gave me the number. So I called. Wow. And that's a long distance call too. I do recall that that is real. That was like the real deal time of long distance meant something yeah. as well. You know, you're a young brother, you don't have much money in your pocket. You know, you have to make these transatlantic calls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got through to him and, uh, you know, Fela's a pretty serious uh, herbsman, as they say in Jamaica, you know, mm-hmm. I mean? <laughs> sure. six hours ahead of New York. So, you know, I caught him in a pretty mellow mood. I put it like that. And I said, yeah, oh, I love your music. And I met you. Remember, we met back in New York. You know, I'm sure he probably didn't remember me. I said, I want to play with the band. And I said, what's the band? What songs are you playing now? And, you know, he titled all of his songs and acronyms in the latter part of his career, you know. Mm-hmm. I said, what, what songs are the band playing now? And he said, oh, D-O-O-U-S-N-A-S-B-O-P. You know, he just said it. <laughs> You're writing it down like, okay, it's a code. Yeah. I didn't really know these songs because he never played music that he had already released. Right, famously. Yeah he, yeah, he felt it wasn't worth it, you know, to play something that had already been committed to vinyl. Well, he was always at war with the record companies, so he didn't want to make money for them since they were ripping him off anyway, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was it. He told me, well, meet me when I get to New York. And when he got to New York, I went up to where he was staying. You know, he was staying in the apartment of his promoter, and I had my horn there and hung out with him. The band hadn't gotten here yet. You know, it was just fella and kind of his inner circle. But I took my horn up there and played. And like I say, he could see that I was really uh, devoted to the music. And I guess he could uh, appreciate my vibe. And I slid on in there. I'm you know, like, someone make this a movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Yeah. And then, I, and then I'm, I'm playing with him on stage at the Apollo Theater. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. it's like truly wild. Yeah, it's it's achieving a dream. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it was an it was achieving a dream just to shake his hands back in 1986. You know, mm-hmm. it actually was caught on film. That was amazing. There's footage, unbeknownst to me, until a few years, well, many years later. But just to shake the man's hand was exciting. Was life changing for me. You know, and then to be on stage with him and and you know that was amazing. And it was a benefit for James Brown. So the whole musical connection between Fela and James Brown mm-hmm. was very, very potent, very profound, you know. And actually, some of the guys who were playing with Brown at that time, I mean, who had played with Brown when Brown visited Nigeria uh, in 1970, December 1970, these were like, you know, Bootsy Collins, his brother, uh, Catfish, the guitar player, Johnny Griggs, the conga player, Jabo Starks, the drummer. If you're familiar with James Brown, it was that band of James Brown. Mm-hmm. So a couple of those guys were there at the Apollo because they lived in New York, you know, so they are, are chopping it up with Fela, yakking about 1970, you know, mm-hmm. when they were in Fela's club in Nigeria <laughs> and, and all of that, you know, so yeah, it was great. Did you continue to stay in touch with him? Yeah, because like I say, he came back to tour the U.S. the following three years. It was 80, 89, 90, and 91, and uh, I was always there when they came through playing and just hanging, and then I went, like I said, I went to Nigeria in 92. You know, uh, with Fela on the ballot this year, I think he is probably the most unexpected name on the ballot because the Rock Hall, although they never say it, 
they're never explicit about it. The Rock Hall tends to be a pretty American institution. You right. know, obviously there's there's British bands, but it, you know, it tends to be North America, Britain, and to have a, a Nigerian, mm-hmm. you know, let alone someone from the continent of Africa is yeah. unusual for the Rock Hall. And I think a lot of the kind of typical Rock Hall audience and maybe the Rock Hall voters maybe aren't as familiar with Fellow's music and his impact. And mm-hmm. so I want to make sure we cover that for our listeners. I know there's there's a lot to cover, but to give some sort of context of who Fellow was and why he's important. And, you know, we, we, we touched on some things very briefly. I, I'm sure there are listeners who are like, what's this about him being imprisoned? What's this about his mother? What's what, what are all these things? So I want to make sure we give the, the proper context. Yeah, well, that's a mouthful, man, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, we can we can try. I can we try can to- We can kind of, Joe probably has a bullet point. Lead us down the path. His first recordings are from, the, or like you said, 1970. That's really when Fella and his group, we mentioned Africa 70. That was the name of his group, which included Tony Allen, whose uh, drumming is very- crucial to what he and Fella were kind of developing the Afrobeat, which I think we've also mentioned, which is the genre that I mm. guess you could, you could say Fella pioneered. Well, well we, we need to go further back than that. You could take Fella in Nigeria, in, you know, let's say West Africa, Nigeria in particular. You could take, say, James Brown in the United States, uh, African-American culture, and you could take Bob Marley in Jamaica and triangulate them as the three icons, the Black Atlantic world, you know, in the decades after World War II, those are the decades of political change. Mm-hmm. Those are the decades of civil rights and Black power and African nationalism and African independence and Caribbean nationalism and independence. So these were the three musicians who uh, arose as a reflection of that cultural mood and that political mood and that historical period. They were constituted by the times to play their role in articulating all of the profound changes that were taking place. So Bob Marley, you know, was someone who came up playing ska, which was the Jamaican popular music at Independence. It was just a good time dance music. But he evolved into someone who was singing about these very profound political and spiritual issues. You know, James Brown came up singing R&B and then soul. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, he was, his genius put him in the heart of the the eye of the storm. So he began to sing about all these racial and political issues. Mm-hmm. Eli in Nigeria was singing uh, High Life, you know, in the early 1960s, which was the popular dance music of uh, Anglophone West Africa, you know, Ghana and Nigeria for the most part. And that that was just good time dance music, it wasn't political music. But mm-hmm. all of the, he found himself in the eye of the storm as a result of uh, all the political and social and cultural changes that were taking place. So you see what I'm doing? I'm trying to play these three musicians off of each other Mm -hmm. so that your audience can get a sense of how he came about and what his significance is and where he sits in the scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And as I kind of recall from the documentary, you know, the political nature of especially America in the the late 60s was an inspiration for Fela in the kind of taking his music and making it political. Well, the thing is, uh, like I say, he was playing High Life, which is just a good time dance music, you know, mm-hmm. actually has roots in the British colonial period. It's like the West African take on big band jazz, you know, mm-hmm. the era, but with different rhythms, you know, indigenous rhythms and things. And he came to, to the U.S. with his band, which was called Kula Lobitos, which is kind of a Spanish name, it means little wolves. So they came here 
and got stuck because their visas were not proper. And uh, they ended up stranded in LA, which is where Fela met a bunch of people who kind of transformed his worldview. Most important among those people would be Sandra Isidore. Uh, this is an African-American woman that he was involved with during the nine months that they were stranded in Los Angeles. And she was, I think she was a former Black Panther. Uh, at the very least, she was very politically active and aware and interested in investigating her African cultural roots, because that was the thing among the African-Americans of that generation. Mm -hmm. That was the first generation of African-Americans who were going back and trying to regenerate that connection of African cultural roots that had been broken by slavery. Mm -hmm. so it was a very profound period vis-a-vis -vis the connection between Africans and African-Americans, fraught with a lot of misunderstandings and tensions, but also defined by a lot of triumphs and breakthroughs and, and profoundly positive and transformative paradigm shifts. So he gets his mind blown politically. And you have to understand one thing about Fela, that even though he was playing High Life, which was just a music of entertainment, he came out of a very political background. His mother, a woman named Fumilayo Ransom Kuti, Ransom Kuti is their family name. And she had been a, an activist for women's rights in Nigeria. She was a very close associate of Kwame Nkrumah, who uh, was the first president of independent Ghana the first African to lead their nation independence from the uh, European colonizer. And she was also, uh, she'd also been in dialogue with Chairman Mao. She traveled behind the Iron Curtain. She traveled to the Soviet Union uh, and some of the other Iron Curtain countries. So she was very influenced by, you know, kind of Marxist class analysis and Nkrumah's Pan-Africanist philosophy. And she was very much a champion of the ordinary people on the street who were going to be marginalized after independence as the Africans assume the reins of, in, of, of power. And, and so all of that was in him, but he just, it hadn't been properly activated. So when he met Sandra Isidore in, in Los Angeles, she was coming with the autobiography of Malcolm X and, you know, Martin Luther King and, and Elijah Muhammad and the Black Panthers and all of the different streams of African-Americans politically, religiously, who were basically fighting against the racist oppression that we've been subjected to for centuries. And that's what awakened the activists in Fela. And so that inspired him to stop playing High Life, you know, and to change his music to this style called Afrobeat, which was, it started out as a, as a style of social criticism mm -hmm. uh, and then evolved into more explicitly political criticism as his career developed and you know, as the situation in Nigeria became more intense. Yeah. And, you know, as he became, as his music became more popular, he became a very important figure, both as a musician and as uh, an activist. And that made him a target. When he transformed his music into a, like a political style, he also changed the sound of the music. We were talking about James Brown earlier, you know, mm -hmm. because James Brown was extremely innovative in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and very popular in Africa. You know, you might even say that after the Cuban influence, which transformed African popular music some decades earlier, the next paradigm shift in, in African popular music was inspired by James Brown. But those musicians were trying to take that James Brown influence and blend it with the local high life influence with varying degrees of success. And it was Fela who was able to crack the code. And so anytime you hear those songs with that, you know, you hear that, what they call chicken scratch guitar, mm -hmm. that influence from Brown's music. So he was able to take that and do it in a much more African inflected way. 
And and that became like the heart of Afrobeat. You know, a lot of people heard it as like a Africanized version of James Brown's funk paradigm. But then it was it went much deeper, you know, because those songs would go on for 20, 30, 40 minutes. And the, the, the mood around them was, it's not to take anything away from the genius James Brown, it's just two different modes of musical genius. And so Fela was able to make it very profound in certain ways because, you know, he was in the middle of this country that was going through all these changes and it was very turbulent. I mean, Nigeria had just become independent from uh, England in 1960. Five years into independence, a gruesome secessionist war broke out uh, that we know as the Biafran War inside Nigeria, it's just known as the Nigerian Civil War. So that turned the country upside down and all the ethnic tension and all the religious tensions between the Christians in the South and the Muslims in the North. And then oil had been discovered and there was this oil boom which totally transformed the economy and just blew, you know, all, all bets were off. And mm-hmm. it was wide open in Nigeria in the 1970s in good ways and in terrible ways. And so someone had to arise, you know, to digest all that and to, to sing about it and also to critique the abuses of power, of social hierarchy that were becoming entrenched in Nigeria at that time. See, most of the African musicians, if you go back into the traditional culture, and this is also true for the popular musicians, most of them are doing what's called praise singing, which means, I'm not talking about any Christian stuff. Praise singing means, you know, you're extolling the virtues of some prominent or powerful person in society. Mm. The traditional role of musicians in most African societies is as a praise singer. You're singing about their exploits and their accomplishments. You're, you're reciting their genealogies. You're extolling their virtues and the accomplishment of their family members and their mm-hmm. ancestors. And you're exalting the deeds of their family line. You know what I mean? Yeah, you are doing the opposite of raging against the machine. <laughs> exactly. So what Fela was doing, because of the background that he came out of, everything that I've described to you about his mother, and his father too, by the way, and also what he had encountered in LA, he took the opposite tack and decided mm-hmm. that he was gonna sing against the abuses of power and the gross inequities of wealth in oil boom Nigeria. Uh, not to mention the machinations of all the multinational corporations who were doing their dirt in Nigeria and in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one part of what kind of put him in the crosshairs of the authorities. But the other part of it was that he was like a rock star rebel and he was behaving in ways that were totally unprecedented. You know, the African societies are traditional societies. You're not flagrant with your sexuality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're not smoking weed and doing it publicly and calling for weed to be legalized. And if you're criticizing anyone, you're doing it in very oblique, poetic language, with more with illusion and double speak. Uh-huh. Singing, you know, explicitly and criticizing people and calling them by names, heads of states and other prominent politicians. So, you know, it was the combination between him being a rebel and flaunting his rebellious lifestyle. You know, he presented himself as an authentic African for having 27 wives that he married in one day and smoking weed and all this. But actually, those behaviors were totally, it was a very conservative traditional society and, and stuff like that was outside of the paradigm. You know, it was almost like mm-hmm. a black exploitation drama playing out in the midst of this very conservative society that had been turned upside down because of all these political and economic changes. So he was the lightning rod for all of that stuff in Nigeria at that time. And that, you know, there are these musicians that just arise at different times and they become lightning rods for the changes that are going on around them and the energies that are going on around them. And that's who Fela was in Nigeria in that time period. 
And so there's a lot that Americans can learn from his saga. You know, the government started to attack him in, with increasing uh, viciousness, beating him nearly to death on several occasions and burning down his house. Uh, his mother later died from injuries that she sustained. I mean, he got a lot of these raids and beatings and arrests and imprisonments uh, over the course of his career. He was arrested and imprisoned, uh, well, arrested hundreds of times and imprisoned dozens of times. Mm-hmm. You know, so he really, he was a, a, a genius musician. He went through a lot. You know, he really paid with his blood for putting himself on the line for his people in Nigeria and singing against abusive authority. So that's a very rock and roll story in itself. And in this time period in which, you know, so much of the uh, popular music that we hear is this, these artists are just corporate mascots, many of them, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You their endorsements or, or their record contracts and you, you can threaten them with anything, you know what I mean? It's like, they're going to shut up. No one really wants to confront these political things and in explicit terms, the way Fela did. And so he did, and he lost a lot, uh, not only physically, but financially and, and on all kinds of ways as a result of doing that. But I think it's an example that we can all look up to because his music was awesome. If you're into that funky groove type of music, but it was like Ziggy Marley said, it was a conscious party. And we need more of those types of musicians in the United States based on what we're confronting, you know? Mm-hmm. We need musicians to actually... We need the musical geniuses to think about more than making money or enjoying the perks of stardom. You know, they need to sing about what's taking us this society under at the moment. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, we're in another cycle of that. Like you can feel it in the air that we are we are currently there is a reckoning happening. It has been happening. You can feel it bubbling, but yeah, where are our conscious musicians? I think that we have people who are willing to make a statement and say things, but I don't think we have, I'm, I'm ready for it. We'll see. Well, you know, see, the thing is, the species won't continue if the geniuses don't arise. I mean, because that's what gets us from one generation to the next and gets us through whatever challenging circumstances we might happen to be confronting at a given point in time. And they don't all have to do it the way he did it. I mean, you look at the 1960s in America, you got someone like James Brown singing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was more explicit. Then you had people who were singing against the, the Vietnam War, you know, and mm-hmm. were singing against militarism. You had people who were singing against sexism, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then you have other people like, say, Jimi Hendrix or John Coltrane, who mainly did it through the sound of their music. It's not like, I mean, Coltrane was playing instrumental music. Mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix wasn't singing about politics, but the sound of those two artists, the very sound of their music was so revolutionary that it was understood, it was felt to be a critique of the way things are, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And a very provocative invitation to reimagine how we might reinvent the world. Absolutely. You know, Michael, you had, when I showed you the ballot, you had referenced how, how do you begin to judge an artist versus another? And is that, you know, is that a fool's errand to try to do at all? How do you pick someone and say they're more worthy than, than someone else, which yeah. is kind of at the, at the heart of what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame does to some degree. And that's a difficult thing to do. Music is subjective. But because I want to try and break down why an artist might get in the hall and why they might not, I devised a list of categories, kind of reverse engineering from seeing who they've inducted. And I think if you do well enough in these categories, you have a decent shot at induction. So what I want to do is I want to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to see how Fela Kuti does in these categories. So we'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice little break there. We hope over your break. That you hydrated in the way that you feel is most appropriate to your time zone. Great. All right. <laughs> Fela Kuti became eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. This is his first nomination. Let's take a look at this first category, which is iconic slash recognizable songs. Now, if you're coming at this from an American perspective, if you're living your life in America, you are not hearing fellow songs that That's often. True. That's, right. That's uh, right. If you go to Spotify and you look, you know, they, they will list the most popular songs. By a mile, uh, Water No Get Enemy is the most listened to fella song. I mean, it's a great song, you know, but that's the one that, you know, if you want the shorthand version of Fela Kuti, you'll have Water No Get Enemy, Zombie. Zombie, oh, zombie. With these songs also like they're not going to get radio play because you know no. these are probably on the shorter end of some of his songs and they're like you know 10 minutes well you know so but but the thing is we have to get out of the corporate paradigm, you know, when we understand his music. You know, if we only assess it via those values, we wouldn't be talking about it in the first place. Yeah, he's not as well known as, I mean, in the United States, as any of the other artists on the ballot. That's true. But, you know, you're going to go through the rest of the categories and we're going to show how um, he's of supreme importance to those other categories. I'm not that I even know which category. <laughs> you can tell, though. But you're anticipating. <laughs> right. So let's take that whole, you know, sales and, you know, that kind of quantifiable stuff. Let's mm -hmm. take that off and put it to the side for the moment. Fair enough. Well, what, what I wanted to, I want to make sure I touch on this, which is that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame does a fan vote every year where online you can choose five of your own and you know a lot of people flock to this and i would not have expected fella just from kind of the reasons we mentioned the american perspective etc not not to perform here but fella has been towards the top pretty quickly and mm -hmm. it's because nigeria and a lot of nigerian musicians uh, have rallied around him people like don jazzy and Burna Boy, people who are huge in Nigeria and people with yeah. millions of followers have really got out the vote. And it has been since then, basically Fela and then Tina are like the top two and they've been going back and forth. It's been kind of cool to see Nigeria be like, Fela is so important to us. We're all en masse going to vote for him and take him to the top of this, this vote. Right. But the thing is, he's not only important to Nigerians, he's important to the world because of what he represented in his music and what he was able to achieve in his music. So I think that's the main point that needs to be emphasized. Um, and the second point that needs to be emphasized along the lines of what you just said is that in Nigeria, I'm not sure what the population is right now, but it's it's gotta be inching towards 200 million. It's very close to you know the population of the United States, you know, in a, a country which is maybe the size of a few American states put together. Mm -hmm. 
basically Nigeria is one of the powerhouses of sub-Saharan Africa. Now Americans don't know anything about Africa. Now most African Americans don't know anything about Africa. You know, it's a problem in our society because of the legacy of slavery and the persistence of racism, as well as the, the global attempts to keep Africa at the bottom of the international economic hierarchy and exploit the resources of that continent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so Africa always gets bad press and that is the bad press is a justification for the continued exploitation of the continent, right? Because if you put African stories on the evening news or television programming or whatnot that depict Africans in a positive light, that will facilitate Americans relating to Africans as human beings and to African-Americans for that matter. Mm -hmm. And then it won't be so easy to sell the exploitation of that continent to you know middle American audience. So there's a reason that Africa only gets bad press on the world stage. It's not because Africa is a totally messed up place because I personally know many Americans of all backgrounds, black, white, Asian, Latino, who've had their lives totally transformed in positive ways by their encounter with African culture. So in that line of thinking, Nigeria is a powerhouse, it's an economic powerhouse of Sub-Saharan Africa is one of the most populous nations in the world. It's one of the most strategically important nations in the world. It's one of the most resource-rich nations in the world. It's one of the nations that has produced the most brilliant people in the world. It's one of the nations with the most turbulent, storied history in the world. And it's one of the nations who, in the colonial period, supplied millions of people who were enslaved in the United States and provided the very foundations for this economy that we're living in and benefiting from and enjoying. So for all of those reasons, Nigeria is a very important presence and Fela is the greatest musician that that country has produced. And he should be talked about in the United States and he sh his name should be on the ballot in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not to mention the fact that rock and roll, the roots of that music are so strongly African-American music, which mm -hmm. means they're also an African music. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm an ethnomusicologist. This is what I teach at Yale every day. So that's another reason. You know, the, the African-American and the West African roots of what we call rock and roll in this country haven't really been adequately acknowledged and explored. Oh, yes. I mean, we talk about that on the show a lot as well. And, you know, I was saying this during the break. There is so much that has been kind of intentionally kept out of the conversation in this country with regard to Africa. I feel like we are at a point where we are just realizing how many things that happened and how many people who were so important that were not recognized in their times and that was purposefully suppressed in the future so that we are now just learning about. Yeah, and absolutely. they're now just getting the recognition again. It's like coming around, at least I hope. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about African-Americans and Africans and that whole trajectory. But when you talk about the United States, there are all kinds of people who have contributed to the brilliance of American music. And, you know, I dare say that American music has probably been, our music has probably been our best export to the wider world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's not only people of African descent, that's not only African-Americans. It's all the Euro-Americans and, and it's everyone from the Caribbean and Latin America and even people from Asia who've contributed to the amazing thing that we've come up with 
you know, which changed the world in the 20th century. What would the 20th century be without American music? Well, and you know, you were talking about the cross-pollination that happened when he came to the U.S. and kind of got stuck here. And then you realized and kind of became saturated in our political unrest and our struggle and then brought that back. And so you have this cross-pollination, you have the taking of the James Brown type of funk music and then kind of like bringing in the African roots with it. And it is, it's like, we're exporting, we're importing. It's the, you know, and now even more so because of the way that the internet works, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. like, but back then, even so, it's like everyone was influencing everyone and it's one of our greatest exports, but we're also importing it too. And that, but but we are quite ethnocentric in this country, especially in this institution, we are, okay, so there's America, there's the UK, maybe you got a little bit of Canada, Australia, we'll allow one German band, we'll put Kraftwerk on the ballot, you know, 20 times and they'll never get in and then full stop. And so to even like have an African artist on the ballot, People are going to hopefully start paying a little bit more attention. It's a breakthrough. It's a long overdue. I don't want to give short shrift to anyone in the United States of any racial or cultural background who has contributed to the greatness of American music. You know, look at what happened in in Louisiana and the Cajun culture, you know, where you got a mix of people of French descent and people of African descent. Uh, You know, look what happened in the Mississippi Delta. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like you got look what look at jazz. I mean, you know, jazz is a is a fusion of of Western European music and West African music that developed in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so this thing called rock and roll, you know, in one way of looking at it, it's just a local American phenomenon. But in a broader way of looking at it, it's a manifestation of a cultural conversation that involves a lot of people in many places of the world. So in in that sense, it's inherently transnational, and we should be looking in other parts of the world, not only in in Sub-Saharan Africa, Mm -hmm. but there are many parts of the world where this phenomenon called rock and roll has kind of taken root or borrowed from or contributed to, which would actually be uh, an amazing elaboration of the paradigm for your average American listener. I mean, like, let's say all the people out there playing guitar, you know, you think Mm -hmm. of rock and roll, the first instrument that you think of as guitar. Mm -hmm. Well, you take that electric guitar and put it on the African continent there's some absolutely amazing guitar-based music that has been developed in Africa. And, you know, former Zaire, now known as Democratic Republic of the Congo, you've got amazing, an amazing tradition of guitar players in that country playing Congolese music like rumba or sukus, as they call it. The famous Dr. Nico, Nicholas Cassanda. You go to Ghana or Nigeria, you know, the so-called high-life music. That's an amazing tradition of guitar playing in Africa. Mm-hmm. You go to, to Mali and Guinea and all of the people that are descended from the former empire of Mali in Senegal, Mali, Guinea, Gambia, and places like that. You got the best guitar players in Africa in bands like Bembea Jazz from Guinea Republic or the Horoya Band from Guinea Republic or uh, all the guitar players from Mali. I mean, it's amazing. So anybody who plays electric guitar, they want to broaden their palette they should check out some of the amazing things that have been happening for the last 60 years on the African continent because it's it's amazing. So Fela really is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. But we kind of put him at the top because he's the one that showed that you can have some groovy, funky music mm-hmm. that can groove your body, right? But at the same time, you can be politically conscious and socially aware and be answerable and accountable to the things that are going on in the world around you. And not to just run on, you know, but I, I, I want to make this, uh, but I want to make this point because this is something that everyone needs to understand about American music. See, a lot of those rhythms 
that we only understand in the United States as either helping someone sell something, like you use it to advertise something, or it's it's like music to make people want to have sex. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like all those black, those African derived rhythms that the African Americans have developed over 400 years in this country because of racism and slavery and also because of you capitalism. know capitalism people only sure. understand those rhythms as you know relating to commerce or sex mm-hmm. they don't understand them for their intellectual value they don't understand them for their spiritual value they don't understand them for their political value so when you get someone like Bella whose music is incredibly funky it's like in that James Brown zone that parliament funkadelic zone that you know what I mean it's going to get your body moving it's going to activate your organism it's irresistible but instead of it just being you know ephemeral entertainment it's like no this guy is singing profound stuff about what's going on in society and that's the deepest lesson that we can learn from fella's music okay michael if yeah. you were to just a song a few songs for our listeners to listen to of fella kuti to like get into it like as like a little a just primer. like a primer yeah. Uh oh, <laughs> that's very difficult. Basically, he's got so many amazing songs. I mean, well, and also hearing that he didn't like to play songs more than one, that, like once a song had been recorded, he was like, "I'm gonna just make some new ones." Well, not only that, but the music he played for the last ten years of his career, almost none of it was recorded, and that was some of his greatest music. Wow, he just was alienated from the record companies in Nigeria and also from the multinational music industry. So he decided he wasn't going to record his stuff. He was just going to play it for his people in his club in, in Lagos, the Shrine. So he's got, I don't know, 10 or 15 songs. And when I say songs, we're talking about these things that go on for like 45 minutes each. So we're not talking, yeah. when I say song, mm-hmm. I don't mean like a little three, three and a half minute slice. Yeah. 10 I mean, to 15 profound, albums could be. Exactly. Profound works of music that that were never even released. He just played them live. Yeah, and he he had he had quite a prolific output. You know, just scanning the lists of albums, you see, you know, nineteen seventy, and then four releases in nineteen seventy one, and then a few more. Like it wasn't just because we're expect we expect or we're used to you know maybe an album a year in the seventies, and now it's like an album every few years. But he was he was really churning them out. Uh, the next category is classic albums. Do you think there is one or two albums that he put out that would be considered definitively classic? Woo! <laughs> and we can also position, sometimes we position this question by asking, do we think that Fella has any entry on the Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest albums? Well, man, there have been so many, probably thousands of works of absolute genius issued on albums. It would be hard to, to narrow it to 500 is doing a big disservice to a lot of people. But I would say, you know, you start with his most popular stuff that he recorded with his Africa 70 band, which mm-hmm. would be like the Expensive Shit album, uh, which has that song, Expensive Shit. Because you shoot this man. Because what are you? Because you shoot this man. Upon a monkey for your hand. Him go bend the ash, him go shit. Him go come out away from him shit. Him shit go be the last to win. Him go like to see. And on the other side, it's got Water No Good Enemy, which you all mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. You might start off with his album Shakara, which has Shakara on one side. Ah, 
and Lady on the Other Sea. When you use this term album in relation to his music, you're really talking about what we would refer to as like 12 inches in, mm -hmm. in our, you know what I mean? Because it's not like 10 different songs. It's like two extended songs. And then later yeah, in on his each career, side, yeah. Yeah, later in his career, it became one song. Like there was an instrumental overture, which was one whole side. And then when they began to sing, that was the other side. Ah. But anyway, uh, but you start off, I say expensive shit album, uh, the Shakara album, uh, the zombie album. I would probably say uh, the Sorrow, Tears and Blood album. Well, oh, that's four, right? It's a good start. It's a good it's start. A good start. Kristen, yeah, do you I, think there's a... Stop. <laughs> Kristen, <laughs> do you think there's any entry uh, on the Rolling Stone 500? I don't because Rolling Stone is, I, I do believe when we get to critical stuff that he's going to do very well, but I don't, I don't think so. Am I wrong? Okay. So in the 2020 list, because uh, they, they, they have done, this, done right. this list a few times and the 2020 list expanded to be, you know, a little less narrow, a little less focused on, you know, the what you white rock with, bands from the 60s. Yeah. Was well, you associate like with 80 percent of the old list. You know, now and, and a lot it's of like 40 Dylan and Springsteen. Um, right. Right. So expensive shit is on the 2020 list. And okay, four seventeen, four seventeen. So see, I was on the money for you. I wasn't just talking out of no, my yeah, no. You, you got it. So they they come in. So that actually comes in at four hundred and two. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was yeah. close, and I did good. It made I was the list, wrong, and then I was right. I also want to the story of expensive shit, like where that name comes from. I think is is pretty funny. They were the government was raiding his house, uh, as I think had become a popular thing for them to do. And they saw him quickly eat some marijuana, trying to get rid of it. And well, then, because at that time, even if you just had half a joint, it could it would it would get you a mandatory ten years in Nigeria. Good lord! And so he he got rid of that, you know, in a way that he thought was permanent. And then they grabbed him and held him, waiting to see his expensive shit to see if it would come out the other end. Oh my god which I, I think is very funny. Well, he was a hilarious guy. I mean, you know, he was a master jokester, especially in that period in the 70s. Most of his songs are poking fun of someone, making fun of someone. He's hilarious as a humorist, you know? Mm -hmm. He could have been a stand-up comedian. And and he incorporated that humor into his, his live shows, did he not? Yeah, he would sometimes talk for 30, 40 minutes between songs, you know? <laughs> so you get a 30, 40 minute song, then you get exactly. a 30, 40 minute stand-up set, and then you get <laughs> another 30, 40 minute song. You only Perfect. want to get three or four songs over the course of the whole evening. Oh right? my gosh! But, but, but in Nigeria, they play. They'll start. He wouldn't even come on stage till midnight, mm -hmm. and then he probably played till dawn. Wow! So it's a whole different way of of being in music. So the next category is critical acclaim, and to me, he feels like. Even if we're just talking about Western critics, it, it's like the perfect thing of that classic critic of like, oh, here's an artist you don't know about, but uh, but I, I'm kind of in the know. I know about him. That to me, and like the fact that the, you expose this music to someone and they're like, oh, this is cool. This is stuff yeah. I've never heard. To me, that fits right in the pocket of, of what you think about when you think about critics. And someone you should know, not only that we're so hip and cool and we got the inside track on the dope stuff, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But this is someone that if you heard it would blow your mind and enrich your life. Yes. Like yeah. I told you about when I heard it for the first time. Yeah, yeah, and it did. It set you on a path for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the next, I know the next category we are going to maybe uh, look the other way when I say commercial success. I was told, <laughs> I was told to put that aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you not listen? He said, put it aside. No, 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 no. I don't mean that. No, look, 
Fela was one of the biggest stars in Nigeria in the 1970s and 80s in a market, a huge market, right? If you want to talk in quantitative terms, a country whose population rivals that of the United States. So to be a big star in that market, if you just want to talk numbers, that's pretty damn huge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's very legit. I've been thinking about like the idea of the different approaches to different types of music and kind of the commodification of it and the idea that when we go to see a western artist, you're going to you know they're going to play the hits, they're going to you're going to be there for a certain amount of time and you're going to get out versus the idea of going to experience it's you know I mean it's also like a jazz type of thing as well but it's like you're going to experience the music with an artist and it's going to take as long as it takes and you're going to be lucky to see it as kind of a concept versus like I hope they play this song I like I am here to view this artist and you know, it's just a very Western kind of capitalist way to to view music versus a more organic way. Yeah, he was at war with the record companies, but also I think it was a savvy move on his part because he wanted to put the pressure on himself to keep producing more great music and mm-hmm. not just relying on his, his hits. And the fact of the matter is he kept creating great music all the way to the end of his life, you know? Well, that connects directly to the next category, which is longevity. Look at Joe, making it happen. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, he's, he starts putting out music in 1970 and like you said, he he extends like obviously the prolific nature slows down a little bit. You know, the 70s, he's putting them out several a year, it seems like. And then, you know, it's going to slow down when you're in jail, of course. Uh, so and then it starts to slow down in the 80s and get a little bit slower in the in the 90s. But as you said, he, he's putting out music and he's performing up until the end. Well, I mean, a lot of factors involved in the slowing down, first of all as he became more high profile as a political dissident, it's hard to, you know, you get in your home rated all the time, it's disrupting Mm -hmm. your frame of mind, your peace of mind, disrupting your continuity of vibe and stability. You know what I mean? So that's one Mm -hmm. thing. Then the Nigerian uh, record industry collapsed during the 1980s and 90s. It's revived now, but of course, the record industry is a, is a radically new paradigm everywhere in the world today. It's not like it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then his illness was getting to him in the, in the 1990s, you know? So that was slowing down his health and his vitality. Right. And I think this is a moment to mention that he died of AIDS. 1997. 1997. Yeah. And he was uh, an AIDS denialist and his brother was a, was a doctor. Well, not only a doctor, his brother was, would be the equivalent of our surgeon general. Oh, wow. In, in other words, the top physician in the country. Mm-hmm. And not only that, he was actively involved in the uh, effort to stem the tide of HIV in Nigeria. It's like if Fauci's brother wouldn't get vaccinated. It's yeah, like, exactly, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the irony there is, is exactly. thick. Mm-hmm. Perfect comparison. The next category is influence. We've started to talk about it. You know, you can you can talk about it from the lens of... American artists as as well as you can from artists around the world. I think about the Talking Heads as a very popular group in mm-hmm. America who were very much, and you look at their biggest album, Remain in Light, it's not on the record, but I think they even have a track, an outtake that's called Fela's Riff. Fela. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I'm trying to think of other artists out right now that we could, I feel like Afrobeat is still a genre that people are playing, listening to. Now they got this thing called Afrobeats with an S and, and that's not the same thing. You know what I mean? That's like, uh, see, Fela created this term Afrobeat, which, you know, he himself even stopped using at a certain point, but that's the term that we use to refer to his music. And the salient distinction is it's politically aware, politically conscious music. Now, someone a few years ago took that term Afrobeat and appended an S to it and started calling it Afrobeats. I think it was someone in Ghana. You know, I'm not crazy about that because it's like, let Fela's achievement stand and let him be recognized for the contribution he made as opposed to taking that term that's associated with his music and just now putting an S on it and just using it to refer to all this electronic music that's coming out like, uh, you know, Nigerian hip hop and hip life in Ghana. You know, those are like electronic dance musics like, you know, that are popular today. Now those musicians are great, but it's not, it doesn't have the same political emphasis and content. So personally, I'm against that, even though who cares what I'm against? Cause it's like, <laughs> the horse is already out of the barn. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, 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 but so that's why I want to make that distinction what they're calling Afro beats now is a marketing category that I think steals the thunder away from Fela's achievement. And I think that's very unfortunate. And that's not to say anything against, you know, these young musicians like Reggie Rockstone in Ghana or, you know, whoever's popular there on that hip life music now or in Nigeria, you got Davido or Burna Boy. You know, Bernie Boy mm -hmm. is actually the, the grandson of Fela's first manager, Benson Donije. So, you know, he always represents for Fela, you know, in, in interviews that I've read and, and I've seen. But... Uh, I think it's important to, to understand that Fela's music stands kind of alone in his own category. There are other political African musicians that you might put in those in that category, like Miriam Makiba and Hugh Masekela. Why? Because they were coming from South Africa, apartheid South Africa. So their music was always political, you know, and they all knew each other. Fela and Miriam Makiba and Hugh Masekela, they all knew each other mm -hmm. because they were all responding against these hardcore political situations, you know? I did yeah. not know. <laughs> to be yeah. clear, I did but, not know. But good to know. Uh, but good yeah. to know. The next category is artistry slash skill. Uh, and I think a lot of what we have described here, whether it's the synthesis of things from around the world, whether it is, you know, being political and having that level of artistic integrity that I yeah. think is so, so apparent. In, in his music. That has probably already been covered so far in this episode, but it, yeah, you know, if there's yeah. anything else that can be said about being a true artist, I don't know that well, they're-, that they're Yeah, I mean, like, well, I it to me sounds like this is one of the categories, like the categories that he knocks it out of the park in are obviously critical acclaim and then artistry and also influence. Mm -hmm. Like those three are standout categories for him and yeah he created a genre of music he brought things to the world that didn't exist before true invention mm -hmm. in and was about the music that yeah you know the, that, the music was was first yeah so innovation is like who does better not many artists i'm giving him full points in this category yeah, if there so. was some sort yeah. of checklist i think so so the, the final category, which often is the most important category, uh, and I, I worry about this one. Well, it's like the first and the last category are kind of in the in a similar vein. What is this, influence? Well, mm -hmm. it's, 
it's something that I think speaks to maybe a problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because the, you know the, these categories aren't necessarily connected to merit more so as they are about trying to figure out what the hall will do. And the last category is, does my mom know who they are? Because you, when you look at the list of inductees in the Rock Hall, the level of American cultural ubiquity. This often... is the fame part of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. I, I would say. Let me answer that this way. Sure. It was a Broadway musical devoted to Fela's life. Mm-hmm. Okay. And brought, and I, I'm from New York, man. Okay. Born and raised. And I'm still living in New York today. And the people going to Broadway shows are mainly coming in from the Midwest. They're coming in from Ohio, mm-hmm. Iowa, Missouri, or down South or out West or North, whatever. So that's everybody's mom. You know? <laughs> everybody's mom are yeah. coming from those places. I mean, I think that distinction is important and does elevate Fella to, you know, another category. But I have to say, my mom did not know who, who Fella Kuti was. Well, does your mom know who Parliament Funkadelic is? She does, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because, yeah, but that's because you guys are involved in music, you know? <laughs> if you go next door and ask those people's moms, they might not, who, what Parliament, what is that, a brand of cigarettes? So I have sad news. Jackie says nope. My mom is pretty cool too. My mom is a young woman. She's only, she's 59 years old. She likes music a lot. She has listened and introduced me to a lot of music in my life. And unfortunately she missed out on fella. She definitely knows who Parliament Funkadelic is though. Okay, but look, if you're her daughter, if you're her daughter, you already had the conversation. So how can you say she doesn't know who he is when you already had the conversation? Now she has heard fella because you've asked the question. And there you go. When the episode comes out in, yeah. in a week, she will. In a week, she will. That is true. This is, I mean, that's the part of comes the out. reason that this show exists is part of the reason that Joe believes in the Rock Hall. When it's doing its job, it's making us know more about the history of music, about how we got to where we are. And yeah. this is a really good example of like them getting it right by putting him on the ballot so that we can be having this discussion. Yeah. I was shocked when this when this name came on the ballot. I was like, no way. And you know that that is part of the discussion that they had in the nominating committee of like, we've got to at least put it on there so that give the mm-hmm. people a chance to know and to vote. I'm glad they did it. Me yeah. too. People are probably talking about fellow more than they had been a year ago. I think that mm-hmm. is for sure. And, and because of the ballot, and I think that's great. Yes. Um, it's time for our verdict. Should fella be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame? Will he be inducted and will it be this year? And we'll start with Kristen. Okay. I absolutely believe that he should be in the rock and roll hall of fame. The question of will is where we get into some hazy area. I don't trust the voting body, they're pretty bad. Just as in general, they don't make good decisions. Sometimes they do okay. And so I don't know that he's going to get in through a traditional ballot. I do see him getting in in a way that is like if they put him in in um what's the side musical category? excellence is musical a, excellence is a side category that is decided by the hall itself. They if they do him in a sat in a side category and just put him straight in, I think that that's probably going to be the way that he gets in. I don't know that the voting body of this institution is going to do it. When is like 
when they figure out a way to do it. I don't know that it's going to happen the traditional way. And that is my verdict. Great. Michael, what, what do you think? I mean, I think I know the first answer, should he, but do you think he will? And do you think it would happen this year? Well, let me tell you something. I'm not going to jinx anybody, you know. Wise. But this is what I will say. A few minutes ago, I mentioned Fela as the first African musician who had an entire Broadway musical devoted to him. And that was a very successful musical on Broadway. Mm -hmm. That was unprecedented. So by the same token, this is the first African musician to even be on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ballot. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. And that is extremely significant. Mm -hmm. And I hope he gets in. You know, because I think he should be in and I think that he should be acknowledged and recognized for his enormous contribution. I think he's an example of musical brilliance wedded to political consciousness. And I think we need more of that. So I hope he gets in. I think he deserves to be in. I think the very fact that he's on the ballot is a hell of an achievement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my answer. Excellent. Full agree. Yeah, and I I agree with you, and I I think he should, and I think that my stance on that has only gotten stronger through talking to you, and I think you've made a a very compelling case. You know, just knowing the history of the hall as I do, I don't think that, (laughs) I mean, like, you you gotta remember that there are a lot of the people who vote are people who are inducted, and I just think about, like, the members of Bon Jovi filling out their ballot, and, you know... (laughs) You know, maybe they have more. So sure, I wouldn't be so sure about that. Maybe they have more eclectic tastes than than I expect. But just knowing these people are in the industry, they Mm -hmm. hear all kinds of stuff. Sure, you know, like if you did a TV show or a podcast about what well-known musicians are listening to, you'd be shocked at some of the stuff they're listening to. Mm -hmm. All the hip-hop musicians are going to rep for fella. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, all five of them that are in the hall. You got five on the ballot this year. I mean, you got Jay-Z, LL Cool J, and some other people. Mm-hmm. Paul McCartney is going to rep for Fela. He has many times, including in his autobiographies and on in films. Yeah. Stevie Wonder is going to rep for Fela. George Clinton mm-hmm. is going to rep for Fela. Bootsy Collins is going to rep for Fela. David Byrne. I mean, uh-huh. so... I'm yeah. like, I want to, yeah. <laughs> you just you put on. a concert together that I want to see as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that's that's a great way, an optimistic way of thinking about it. But I just, I, you know, again, like I know the hall tends to whiff um, yeah. on things that aren't super obvious, sadly. And so I'm hopeful, but I'm not holding my breath. And I think knowing the way the voting system works, what Kristen said about having a category and introducing an an international category so that the hall can finally make some acknowledgements of the contributions around the world to rock and roll, to music, I think would be a good idea. And the mission of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think would be expanded in a positive direction. Now, let's though, let's just say Fela gets in this year. Okay. And you already kind of started to do this. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, you did. Who should give the speech to induct Fella? So they usually mm-hmm. get like a big marquee name to give an impassioned speech about, you know, why this artist is important. And you, you listed off a bunch like I mean, I'm Paul like, McCartney if they could David get Byrne Paul McCartney, and- the, the hall would do anything. If Paul McCartney said, I'll show up to induct Fella Kuti, they would just put him in. Don't you I think? think? He would do it. I think he would probably do it. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's artists like, you know, I can see Bono wanting to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Questlove. Oh, God. Bono. David Byrne, for sure. 
Questlove wow. is kind of like the curator, you know what I mean? You yes. Know, Questlove, David Byrne, McCartney, Ivano, yeah. That would uh, be great. You wonder would do it? Oh my lord! Sure, I would sure love would. to see all of that. I would not love to see Bono do it. He did uh, <laughs> Bob Marley's induction speech, and it is there. A part of it is quite embarrassing. Yeah, a he's cringe. doing his best, but oof. And you know, uh, someone who who covered "Sorrow, Tears, and Blood" uh, is common. You know, mm-hmm. a more a more contemporary artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, that's not. He's he's done several of Fela's songs and collaborated with Fela's son, uh, uh, Femi. Well, and that would be, I think, common is where you is who you bring in to do the tribute performance. So that's the uh, follow up question. You know, what what is what is the performance look like? What should they play? Obviously, it's going to have to be a little bit abbreviated, given that this is a ceremony <laughs> as a time limit. And play a five minute tune, huh? <laughs> no, but oh, yeah, I man. mean, a lot of the people we've mentioned, you know, if they're not giving the speech, if they're on hand to play the tribute performance. And also, I'm sure you'll you'll know the name, but there's that group in New York. Antibalas. Yes, Antibalas, who they are, you know, if you want someone to play fellow songs, they're experts. If you want someone to cover some fellow songs, they know they know how to do it. So they bring them in and then they get common in. Who else comes in to like Questlove's always there? Questlove's always there. He's He's on the the drum. We get Michael, like, talked his way backstage. He brought his horn just in case. (laughs) He's walking in. He's on stage. Next thing you know, he's on stage doing the Fella tribute. I think incorporating incorporating people who played with Fella, including his his children, would be a meaningful gesture. Right, right, right. And I think that that could be very cool. That could be yeah. a, a very cool tribute. We're talking about this performance. And I'm like, that's something I actually would really love to see. And I think would cool. be an incredible thing. It's like, and that's why you got to just bypass all this shit and just straight up put him in. And then you get the incredible performance where we learn about this music. And then we have all these great musicians doing an amazing tribute. Well, if Fella gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Michael, would you go to the ceremony? Yes, of course, if I were invited. Well, we are definitely going to be there. So uh, if it happens, we'll be there. no one else invites you, we'll invite you. And then we'll we'll, we'll weasel yes. everybody backstage and we'll, and we'll get you up there with your horn. I'm not going under my own money. You know what I'm saying? I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start a Kickstarter. We'll do a GoFundMe. <laughs> but Michael, I want to thank you so, so much for, for doing this. Uh, I Again, I said it at the top and I think I confirmed it. You are the person to talk to about Fella and I, I really appreciate it. Well, yes. Thanks for inviting me. I hope it was helpful for you and your listeners. Oh, hell yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to give you the opportunity. I don't know if you have anything you would like to plug. Yeah, well, uh, well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I'll plug the book, Fella, The Life and Times of an African Musical Icon. I was published in 2000. Tony Allen, the great, collaborated with Fela. Tony Allen, master drummer of Afrobeat, that was published in 2013. I've got a book coming out about the last two years of Jimi Hendrix. Oh, cool. Jimi Hendrix, the Pan-Africanist, Jimi Hendrix, Dialogue with the Jimi Hendrix, the, the sound experimentalist, Dialogue with Miles Davis, so that should be interesting. Mm-hmm. I've got a book coming out about John Coltrane's later music. And then I've got to plug my bands that I play electric bass in. Yeah, please. Um, Michael Veal and Aqua Ife. That's A-Q-U-A-I-F-E. Mm-hmm. And I think both of our albums are available on the usual streaming platforms, uh, iTunes and Amazon and all that. That's uh, Afrobeat jazz, meaning it's instrumental music. It's got some of the greatest jazz funks and, and African musicians in New York City. We're burning it up on the stages of New York City. Awesome. And we will return to that as soon as 
things reopen here. Yes. We burned it up in Europe, you know, and uh, we're going to continue to burn it up. Oh, can't Hell wait. Yeah. Michael, if we come to New York, we're coming to see you burn it up. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No doubt. That sounds like a there. lot of fun. It really does. But I, I really enjoyed talking to you all and very nice meeting you. And I would just end by saying the very fact that Fela has gotten onto the ballot is a is a hell of an achievement in and of mm-hmm. That is a triumph. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, our listeners can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. RockHallPod at gmail.com is the email. If you want Kristen to see the message, you're going to need to designate that somewhere. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us five stars only. Anything less than five is rude. Thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Yusu Kim for the music. Thank you to AKG for the microphone. And thank you to Pantheon Podcasts for hosting us. I'm Joe Quazala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares about the Rock Hall? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.